Again, Acts chapter 17. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. Today we're going to look at turning the world right side up. Turning the world right side up. Our main text is going to be Acts 17 verses 1 through 10. Let's actually read those verses and then I'll provide just a, a brief bit of context for us. Acts 17 starting in verse 1. It says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Sorry, Jason, our Jason here in the church, not you. Sought to bring them out to the people, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In the first part of verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, in the previous couple studies, we saw how the Lord had closed some doors, had redirected these men through some, some no's by the Spirit. No, you can't go there. Finally giving Paul a vision in the night, a man of Macedonia standing and pleading, Paul, come and help us. They conclude, this is the Lord. The Lord's doing this. The Lord wants us to go. They now travel out of Asia Minor or in the area of Turkey. And for the first time, they're taking the gospel into what we know as Europe. They're going into Macedonia, the northern region of the country of Greece as we know it today. And they make it to the city of Philippi. And, and, and nothing that we would think in the vision that they would immediately see started to happen. They go to the riverside. There's not even enough Jews in the city to have a synagogue. They go to this place where prayer was made. They're talking with some women. A woman, Lydia, gets saved. And then her household gets saved. And they get baptized. And, and it's like, okay, God's doing some cool stuff. They, they start to kind of go back to that area after that. And... And they start getting followed by this demon-possessed slave girl who was a fortune teller and made a lot of money for her slave masters. And she's crying out that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation to us. And many days she did that. And Paul finally gets to a point where he, uh, in the name of Jesus, commands the demon to flee. The demon leaves this young girl so her life is delivered. I, I believe at this point she also had turned in faith to Christ. The men who were her masters were angry. They bring these men before uh, the magistrates of the city. They uh, 
you know, try to falsely accuse them. They beat them with rods severely. They put them unjustly into an inner place of a prison, not just the normal cell, but the worst of the worst sorts of conditions they could possibly find. Their feet in stocks. And at midnight, we find them not complaining, not shouting angrily, but worshiping the Lord and praying. Prisoners are listening. An earthquake happens. Their chains are loose. The doors are open. The prison guard was sleeping on the job. He wakes up. He thinks everybody left. He's going to take his life. Paul intervenes. He cries out and says, dude, don't do it. We're all still here. He runs in and falls down before Paul and Silas says, how can I be saved? They say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. Immediately, this man, there's transformation taking place. He gets saved. His household hears the word of God. His household gets saved. They all get baptized. He's a transformed man. He's washing now Paul and Silas's wounds. He's bringing them into his home. He's feeding them a meal. He brings them back to the prison and uh, Philippian magistrates find, you know, maybe a, a, a spot in their heart to want to release these guys. We don't really know why. The next day, they decide to let them leave. And Paul says, hey, just so you know, we're actually Roman citizens. Everything that you did was completely illegal. Busted. Like, majorly busted. These magistrates could have gotten real trouble. Paul not telling that before they were beaten or imprisoned, but after the fact, he's providing sort of a buffer of safety for this new church that was being planted that they were going to be leaving behind as they moved on. But before they did that, we found out that they went and gathered with the brethren there and they encouraged them. I just love seeing the dynamics that have played out in the book of Acts, the heart that these men had for people, even when it was bringing physical harm and difficulty to themselves. They leave the city of Philippi and begin to travel out, and it brings us to verse 1, where again we read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. As I said last week, Luke seems to stay behind in Philippi. He had been using sort of a third-person sort of approach. He kept saying them and they. They did this, and it was, it was them that the people came to. And, and then all of a sudden, we find him being included when Paul and his team travel from uh, where they were at in northwestern Turkey, sailing across into Macedonia for the first time. Luke starts to say we and us, but now that we and us is gone again, which leads us to believe that Luke stayed behind in Philippi, maybe to disciple these new believers, see this church established in the Lord. But Paul and Silas just keep going. They believe God had called them to come to Macedonia and preach the gospel to the people throughout that region. And being unjustly beaten with rods and thrown into a dungeon wasn't going to deter them from continuing on into other parts of Macedonia with the gospel. And I don't know about you, but if I were Paul and Silas, 
at this point, I would want to take a bit of a vacay. Like, I need a break. I need to reassess my life and my priorities. Like, do I really want to do this? Because everywhere we go, trouble follows us. Is, is this what we're, I mean, I mean, God, are we really in the center of your will? Like, is this what, is this what's supposed to be going on right now? Like, am I doing something wrong? I don't know about you, but that would, I, I would maybe ask some of those questions just to like make sure that everything's still fine. Maybe just take a little bit of a break. Let my body recover from the severe beating I had just gotten. My thought wouldn't be, who else could I reach? I'd be like, how do I get some time at the beach? Like, I just want to chill, put my feet up for a little bit. But I'm challenged and encouraged by the example of these men. Really. Because when I'm in that place and I'm overwhelmed or I'm exhausted or I feel like I've given and I'm maybe not getting anything in return, selfishly, my mindset isn't just keep going, keep pouring out. Keep, keep putting yourself in that spot where you're just going to get more tired or going to have to give more. It's like, how do I get some me time? How do I take care of me? And seeing how Paul and Silas and Timothy responded in these situations, it's challenging. It challenges me to my core. Because we know in our own heart of hearts where our mind goes in those places. And yet this sort of gospel-centered mentality, this kingdom-mindedness that these men had, it kept moving them forward. And having said that, throughout our study this morning, I'm going to share four things in light of the accusation against these men in verse 6 that they had turned the world upside down. Four things I believe we can learn from Paul and his team in our verses this morning about how to turn this upside down world right side up. And it's with the unjust beating and imprisonment right before this, and then still continuing their gospel mission through Macedonia, that I want us to consider the first of those four things, okay? The first thing I believe we can learn from our verses, from, from those who turn the world right side up, is that number one, we need to endure through difficulty and opposition and suffering and distractions and discouragement, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. We need to endure. See, our spiritual enemy wants to use each of those things. He wants to use the difficulty and the opposition and the suffering and the distractions and the discouragements to get our eyes off of the Lord. He wants to sidetrack us, to sidetrack us and, and sideline us so that we stop moving forward. And we get caught up in all kinds of other things. Wants to trip us up and cause us to fall so that we stop running with endurance. The race that's been set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Paul and his team endured through difficult things. And know this this morning, that God wants to build endurance into our lives too as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Guys, we need endurance. Because if we're just hoping that all the trouble is going to go away, we're, it's, it's not actually a realistic sort of mindset. Because Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's going to be hard. You're going to have trouble. When we look at the end time scenario and what will happen in the last days before Christ raptures his church, we don't find that everything's just kumbaya. Pestilence and famine and war and all these things that Jesus had even taught about. But somehow we can get ourselves into this thinking that, well, stuff's going to get better. Or stuff should be better. Stuff should be easier. Life should be easier. And we miss that in the very beatitudes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you. They speak evil of you. And they revile you. And they cast out your name as evil. Leap for joy, he even says at one point. And we're like, wait. Jesus, are we? You're kidding, right? It's a joke. Like, afterwards, you're going to say, psych! And we're all going to be like, oh, Jesus, you're so funny. Like, <laughs> he doesn't do that. He never said, nah, just kidding. JK, y'all. <laughs> no. He's like, it's going to be hard. How do we keep going? If it's going to be hard... If stuff potentially even in our world can get worse, how do we not just find ourselves in a fetal position on the floor with our thumb in our mouth? We need God to build endurance into our lives that we can bear up under the load. The load might not go away. We know that, right? The load might not go away. The suffering might not go away. The opposition might not go away. How do we move forward if the thing doesn't go away that we want to go away? We need the power of God at work in our lives, building a supernatural endurance. And I believe that endurance often comes in the midst of the race with all of the hurdles and the weights and the things that can ensnare us. And, and, and what we do is we keep moving forward and we keep looking to Jesus. The endurance isn't just going to come naturally. The endurance comes as we keep our eyes focused on our Lord. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Guys, this is a marathon. Our lives are a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not the 40-yard dash. We're in it for the long haul, no matter 
how long that time is that the Lord has for us. But as we're running and as things are difficult and as the distractions are out there, because the distractions are there, are they not? They're everywhere. The Lord is wanting to fortify us in our running, to strengthen us to keep going, to not lose heart. And there's so much to want to make us lose heart today. We need the Lord's help, and yet that endurance is something he wants to build into us. We got to keep looking to Jesus. Keep moving forward. Now, it doesn't seem that Paul and Silas and Timothy really spent any sort of time in the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia, besides probably stopping at each place for the night, because each stop would have been about a day's journey. It was upwards of 30 miles or more to each of these places as they left the city of Philippi. But they kept going. They passed through those areas until they arrived in Thessalonica, which was about a total of 100 miles of travel from the city of Philippi. And just for some background, Thessalonica was the, the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. The city of Thessalonica actually still exists today, almost 2,000 years later, but it's called Thessaloniki or Salonica, known by both names. The city of Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC by the Greek general Cassander who married Alexander the Great's half-sister whose name was Thessalonica. Strangely enough, he named the city after her and most of us guys could never say that we named a city after our wives, although that would be cool. He did it. Uh, later in 168 BC, the Romans conquered the area. They divided Macedonia into four districts. They made Thessalonica the capital city of one of those districts in the, at the time. And then in 146 BC, the Romans reorganized the Macedonian districts and they made Thessalonica actually the, the capital of all Macedonia. At the time of Paul's visit here in Acts 17, it's believed that there were upwards of 200,000 people living in this city. It was a hub for commerce and politics. It was, it's still located on the Aegean Sea. It was a chief seaport uh, and shipping center in Paul's day. And it was located on the Ignatian Way, which was sort of a main road that connected Rome with the east. And though it was mostly made up of, of Greeks and Romans... It also had a Jewish population and enough of one that the city had its own synagogue, as we see at the end of verse 1. But getting into verses 2 and 3, it says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. It was Paul's custom 
It was his habit. It was what he was passionate about. He was passionate about seeking out synagogues, reasoning with his countrymen from the scriptures. He had a deep desire, enough of one that in the book of Romans, he says he wished that he himself could be accursed from Christ if it would mean that other fellow Jews would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. His desire was was so great for them, and he would seek them out to preach Jesus to them. And we're told in verse 2 that he spent three Sabbaths in the synagogue there trying to reach those people for the Lord. And this is where I want to share another thing I believe we can learn from Paul and his team about how to turn this upside-down world right-side up. The, the second thing we can learn from those who turn the world right-side up is that we need to prioritize Jesus, his kingdom, and his gospel over ourselves, our will, our agendas, and our comfort. Listen, they, they didn't just endure through difficulty. They continued to faithfully prioritize Jesus' commission over everything else. We've got to keep Jesus' kingdom priorities as our main priorities, or else we will prioritize everything through the lens of self. What I want and what I think and what works with my goals and dreams, how something makes me feel, what I'm comfortable with it and what's going to make me happy you know when we filter our lives through the priority of self the things of the kingdom fall to the wayside real quick because when we look at jesus's desire to see the kingdom of god advance to see the glory of god exalted it it means that our will we'll have to take a back seat to the will of God. And in our own flesh, we don't like that. I don't want to have to put my things to the side. No, what I want, I want to do. And when I want to do it, I, I want to do it. Like what, what's good for me, I want to be about. But that's not the right kind of priorities. Understand that Jesus, his kingdom, his gospel, his commission, it it always runs contrary to self-focused living. It it requires sacrifice and obedience and faith. It, It will often disrupt our desire for comfort. Yet there's no greater life than the one where Jesus sits supreme on the throne of our hearts and where his kingdom and his gospel and his commission motivate every priority that we have. There's no life that brings greater joy or fulfillment or hope or peace than the one that's lived radically and singularly for Jesus Christ. In Paul and his team going to the synagogue for those three Sabbaths, we see that they faithfully prioritize Jesus and his kingdom and his commission over everything else, knowing it could get them into more trouble. But again, in those synagogue gatherings, we see that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, 
the them there, including both Jews and devout Greeks, which could be a mix of, you know, Greeks that proselytized into Judaism. They effectually became Jews because of their, uh, you know, grafting into the, the Judaistic system. But it could also have just been some God-fearers who just were kind of interested. They were seeking after Yahweh and worshiping him. Paul and his team went to where the people were, and they pointed them to Jesus. And this is where I want to point out another thing, share another thing I believe we can learn from Paul and his team about how to turn this upside-down world right-side up. The, the third thing we can learn from those who turn the world the right side up is that we need to place ourselves around lost people. We need to go to where they are and give them Jesus. You know, it's hard to reach lost people when we're keeping them at arm's length, when we're distancing ourselves from them, when we see and treat them as the enemy when we just keep to our Christian bubbles, when we're building fences to keep lost people away from us instead of building bridges relationally to bring the gospel to them. Our world is upside down because of sin, because of rebellion to God. It's been upside down ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Things have not been right. I mean, think about what happened after that with Cain and Abel? Stuff has been messed up ever since Adam and Eve defied God when they thought that they knew better than God. When they listened to the voice of the serpent, of Satan. Stuff's been upside down ever since. And sin is always at the root of it. Re rebellion is always in there, mixed in with that. And in order for us to see the world turned right side up, we've got to live out the gospel personally and genuinely and radically in front of other people. In relationship with lost people. And also opening the scriptures and sharing the gospel of Jesus with those people. Both the living of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel are necessary. I think that there are people that have watched some believers' lives and they hear what they're saying. They hear them saying that, that people need to get saved. They hear them saying that Jesus loves them. But the actions and the character of those people might be speaking something completely different to them and they have lost their credibility. They've lost their saltiness. Guys, we need to make sure that our living matches our speaking. And that doesn't mean that we're going to not, you know, we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're not always going to say and do the right things. We might say something and then find ourselves acting hypocritically, but how we respond when those things happen, matters greatly in the effectiveness of our witness with people around us. When we acknowledge our sin, when we confess our sin, when we humble ourselves, even before unbelievers, those things help preserve 
the saltiness of our lives. Because I can guarantee you, we're going to ruin people's thirst for Jesus when we're acting contrary to how Jesus would actually act. No one's going to be thirsty for, why would they be thirsty for Jesus when we're dishonoring him? When we're acting in a way that doesn't represent him at all. We could look at the life of Jesus and think that we're maybe imitating him or following in his footsteps, but maybe how we're going about that, maybe there's some things that need to change. Yes, we have to share the gospel because salvation is something that comes about by receiving that message. So the gospel has to be preached, but I I think in our day there needs to be a a re-emphasis of gospel living, of living out a life of grace, of living out a, a life that's transformed by the power of God. Are people seeing that Jesus is alive when they see us? Are they seeing that our Jesus is a Jesus who loves them and gave his life for them, that wants to forgive them, that wants to transform them and give them hope? Or are people looking at us and going, I'm not really sure. Like, (laughs) I know what those people are about. And in even saying that, I, I you know, I, I think that it's it's hard because we we've when we think about placing ourselves around around lost people, going where they are, some people just take that and they go, Well then I'll just get I'm I'll just sin in their sin. Go and I'll partake in their sin. I'll be where they are. I'll meet them where they're at. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. But oftentimes it's easier just to stick to ourselves, to not go into people's mess, to not involve ourselves with people who are, are living in godless sort of living because it, 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 in some places in our hearts, it, it, re, it, it repulses us, but we have to remind ourselves that was us. That was us before Jesus saved us. That was us before Jesus transformed us. We were just as lost as they were at one point in time. The only difference between us and them is that by the grace of God, we were able to humble ourselves and and put our faith in Jesus Christ and receive his free gift of salvation. But those people need us to go to them. And they would maybe never even say that. In me even saying that, it might offend them. But it's true. Guys, salt and light are only really effective when people grab a hold of them. If a flashlight's on a table across the field from me, what good is it doing to me? It's not, it's not, it's not helping anything. It needs to be in my hand. It needs to be on. I can have a salt in the salt shaker and my food can be bland and I could... Just keep the salt in the salt shaker and enjoy my bland food. But you know what? The salt's really effective when it's applied, when it's poured out. God wants to use the saltiness and the the light of Christ that's been placed within us 
It's not something we have to grow in. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you will be. You already are. Just use what you got. (laughs) But use it in the context of being around unbelievers so that they can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Shine your light before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. If we're not around lost people, how are they ever going to see our good works? How are they ever going to glorify our Father in heaven? we got to go to where they are and then give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. Now, when we see that Paul, in verse 2, reasoned with them, that reasoning means that there was a dialogue that took place. It wasn't just Paul preaching at the people, that, but that he listened to the people's questions and objections and, and doubts even and, and talked through those things with them with grace and love and patience. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He put all the emphasis on the authority of the word of God. He didn't just say, hey, take my word for it. <laughs> He opened the word of God with them. But we also see from verse 3 that he explained the scriptures to them, which means he opened the scriptures and then he interpreted what it said in a way they could understand. And then we see that along with explaining, he also demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This means Paul provided evidence. He gave proof as he opened the scriptures and interpreted what they meant. As John Stott put it, identifying the Jesus of history with the Christ of scripture. Paul didn't just simply point out all the messianic passages. Look at how cool that is. Read this one and read that one. No, as he pointed out the messianic passages, he also place the life and ministry of Jesus alongside those passages and showed how Jesus fulfilled them in his first coming in order to prove to them that the Jesus who he was preaching to them was indeed the Christ. Well, let's see the response in verse 4. It says, And some of them were persuaded... And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. The the Jewish people who lived in anticipation of the Christ, the Messiah, had heard, no doubt, some really compelling preaching from Paul where he laid out the scriptures to them, explained and gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. He, he drew those straight lines from the Messianic passages throughout the Old Testament to Jesus being the fulfillment, that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And Paul gave them opportunity for dialogue. No doubt giving some really great answers in return, but notice that only some of them were persuaded. You know, it's tragic when someone is blinded to the truth, when they willfully reject what's clearly true in Scripture, when they're unreasonable and 
hardened by their own pride and won't be persuaded, won't be convinced to believe in the truth about who Jesus is. But while only some of the Jews were persuaded, a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few, which is Luke's way of saying there was a lot of them, a lot of leading women joined Paul and Silas. So though only some of the Jews were persuaded among the Greeks, among the Gentiles in that synagogue gathering, a great multitude responded to the gospel and were saved. Which just reminds us that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. As Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, we just need to give people Jesus. So he's seen this positive response to the gospel as people put their faith in Jesus and join Paul and Silas. But our, in our, our next section of verses, we're going to see the negative response that came about because of the Jews who were not persuaded to believe, who opposed the gospel and these men who were preaching about Jesus. So let's read verses 5 through 8 now. Verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men... From the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowds and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Those of the Jews who were not persuaded became envious of how the people were responding to Paul's message. Probably envious that in following Paul and Silas, they would maybe drift away from being a part of those synagogue gatherings, maybe envious that all of a sudden Paul and Silas had this following of people that they wanted and that they wanted to to preserve. It's interesting that envy was at the heart of this because envy was at the heart of the religious leaders who crucified Jesus. Remember, Pilate saw through the accusations of the chief priests and the leaders and knew that it was because of envy that Jesus was being delivered to be crucified. It was envy. And in their envy, they did some crazy things. These are people that were just a part of these synagogue gatherings. And now they're going and finding all the crazy people, all the people that were probably maybe prone to criminal activity, the people who would be the the rough sort of type. And they go and find them and they they grab them and (laughs) say, And and start gathering a mob to incite violence against Paul and Silas and Timothy and go to Jason's house, who must have been somebody that Paul and Silas and Timothy were very probably staying with. Maybe this is where the new church was already kind of holding their gatherings And as they couldn't find Paul and his companions, they 
decide to drag Jason and some of the other believers to the rulers of the city, and they began to cry out some very strong accusations in verses 6 and 7. Check out how they began their accusation in verse 6. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This is powerful. I mean, think about it. These are people on the outside. These are people who are not believers, who are envious and have hatred in their hearts for Paul and his team and the Jesus that they stand for and preach about. And this is what they see when they look at these men. This is what they see in response to the ministry that was taking place. Their world being turned upside down. This is another way of them saying that Paul and his team were disturbing, troubling, upsetting their world in the way that they liked everything to be. But really, Paul and his team weren't turning the world upside down. Even though these gospel-rejecting Jews felt their world was in upheaval by these men and their message, no, their world as we've already said, was already upside down because of their sin and rebellion to God and their rejection of Jesus. No, Paul and his team were seeking to see the world turned right side up as the gospel went out and people who were living in opposition to God believed in Jesus and were reconciled and found peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul and his team were seen as the troublemakers because they were upsetting the status quo. They were going against the grain of the godless culture as they sought to live radically for Jesus and love radically like Jesus. But it was flipping these gospel-rejecting Jews' lives upside down. And these, these Jewish people hated Paul and his team for it. But in verse 7... They mingle some truth with their lie. They, they tried to make it seem as though there was some sort of conspiracy against Caesar going on and that Jason was harboring cr uh, criminals. Paul and his companions were not acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, but the truth is that they were telling people about another king and that king was Jesus. This is where I want to share the, the final thing I believe we can learn from Paul and his team about how to turn this upside down world right side up. The, the fourth thing we can learn from those who turn the world right side up is that we need to continue having our lives and witness shaped each day by our allegiance to King Jesus. You know, in a day where politics and policies and the pandemic have caused many people to break off into different factions, just furthering an us versus them mindset about pretty much every possible issue. Our, our lives, our witness have to be shaped by our allegiance to King Jesus. This means we have to guard against having our lives shaped by politicians and political parties and worldly philosophies, and media outlets, and all the different narratives that are being pushed and make sure that it's Jesus and his word that are the authority 
in our lives. That him and his word are shaping how we see and think and respond to everything. Submitting wholeheartedly to the lordship of Jesus Christ and being shaped by King Jesus alone. I mean, for them to say that they were preaching about another King Jesus, it means that they weren't going around preaching about their favorite nation. They weren't preaching about their favorite leader. Remember Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, he actually rebuked the Corinthians for elevating their favorite Bible teacher of the day. I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. He says, it's carnal. It's carnal what you guys are doing and the division that's taking place. And understand that in the Jewish nation, there was a strong national identity, especially because they had been displaced so many different times throughout the course of history. Jewish people were about the nation of Israel, which at this time was under the rule of Rome. They weren't going around preaching about Israel. They weren't even preaching about how horrible Caesar was. They were just preaching about how great King Jesus was. They were preaching about how amazing the kingdom of God was. And I think there's a revisiting of that that's needed in our day. We need to kind of pull in the reins and make sure that the thing that we're most vocal about, the allegiance that drives us the greatest, is a kingdom that is not of this world. It's the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. Look, the church here in America is not the only church. Be thankful for the country that we live in. Be grateful. And yes, we can vote and we can have policy put in in place and we can try to safeguard our freedoms that we have, but... Guys, at the end of the day, preaching about our freedoms is not what's going to make someone turn to Jesus Christ. It's preaching about Jesus that's going to cause somebody to turn to Jesus Christ. Stuff in this world's getting worse. Our country is going in that direction. We can lament that. But in the midst of our lament, we've got to keep moving forward. We've got to endure and we've got to keep making our lives about the kingdom that will never fall. The kingdom that will never decline. A king who will never fail. Guys, our lives have to be shaped. We've got to fight against being conformed by this world. And sometimes that being conformed is by other voices that seem to be godly even at times. But if it's not clearly rooted in kingdom priorities, in kingdom values, in representing our king, it's not the right things to be shaped by. Well, Jared, you just don't like America. You don't like our country. 
not saying that. So there's always that chance. I'm going to hear everything that I just said and go, man, this guy's anti, anti-America. Not anti-America. But in the midst of our gratitude for our country, in the midst of the gratitude for the founding of how what we, our, our country was even about was founded on biblical values. It was never supposed to be that we're just all about our country. It was supposed to be that we're all about Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel and his commission. What is shaping us today? What voices are shaping our mindset about people and our walk of life and the way that we're going about things? Because if it's not the word of God and the God of the word, some stuff has to change. And it's not gonna be God's word, I'm telling you that. His word's not gonna change. His word's not what needs to be shaped. It's you and me. The accusation was that Paul and his team were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Not because they were preaching against Caesar or or against Rome, but that the emphasis of their ministry was to exalt King Jesus and his kingdom and his teachings above everything else. Everything else. Guys, there's people around us today that are desperate for something different. What are we going to give them? What are we going to give them? Because if we're giving them anything but Jesus, we're giving them the wrong thing. The wrong thing. There is no hope. There is no peace. There is no life in anything apart from him. King Jesus. I just love that. There's another king, Jesus. And man, he is a great king, isn't he? He's not like any earthly king. His kingdom's not like any earthly kingdom. And guys, over the past 2,000 years since Jesus arrived on the scene, nations have come and go. Leaders have come and go but the word of God will endure forever. Our king will endure forever. He's still on the throne right now. Amen? This didn't go well with the rulers, though, regardless. They didn't like it. It freaked them out. You know, it's like all of a sudden they're thinking there's some sort of a, a insurrection taking place when hearing that these men were preaching about another king. But it seems that they maybe saw through the envy of these unbelieving Jews by what we find them doing in verse 9. So our last verse and a half here, verse 9, the first part of verse 10, it says in verse 9, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. This taking security was probably 
more than just posting bond money to get out of trouble. It probably carried also with it some sort of a promise making that Paul and his team wouldn't return to the city and potentially cause any more trouble. But once they did that, they let Jason and the rest go back home. As we see in the verse, uh, beginning of verse 10, the, the brethren, these new believers in Thessalonica, saw the seriousness of this situation. They were concerned for Paul and Silas and Timothy's well-being, and they sent them away by night to Berea, which we'll get into more next week. But with that, in just a short amount of time, likely a few months rather than a few weeks, even though the only sort of time format we're given was those three Sabbaths, uh, we also know from Paul's writing to the church in Philippi that he received two financial care packages in his time, or at least two, uh, while he was there, that Paul had to labor in his tent-making position while he was there to provide for himself. So it's likely that it was much longer than just the three Sabbaths and maybe upwards of a few months that Paul was there. But just in that short amount of time, as we'll learn from what Paul writes just a, a short time later in his two letters to the church in Thessalonica, clearly an amazing church was planted there. The seed of the gospel had taken root in people's hearts. Lives were being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was being proclaimed that this upside down world of those who were living in darkness was being turned right side up as the light of the gospel of Christ was shining into the lives of those in the city of Thessalonica. But I would ask us this morning, what about here in the Bay Area and what about us today? We look around, we see that the world is upside down. It's not hard. I don't think any of us look around and go, yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense what I'm seeing around me. We're like, that is ridiculous. We're baffled probably often when we watch news or hear news reports or we're hearing things that are going on. We see something that's going on, how somebody's responding to a situation, and we're just going, this is just nuts. It's just nutty. Stuff's a mess brokenness and hopelessness is rampant good is being called evil and evil is being called good and it can discourage us it can make us want to become reclusive and, and stick to what's comfortable but i believe from the example of paul and his team that god wants to make us those who help turn this upside down world right side up also i pray we take these things heart to heart today that we endure through difficulty and opposition and suffering and discouragement and distractions that we endure while keeping our eyes on jesus i pray that we prioritize jesus and his kingdom and his gospel and his commission over self i pray that we place ourselves around lost people that we go to where they are and we give them jesus and I pray that we continue to have our lives, our witness, shaped each and every day by our allegiance to King Jesus and him alone. You know, maybe God has placed us strategically where he has us for such a time as this. Maybe instead of trying to escape we really press in. 
it can be easy to just want to escape. I just want to, <laughs> I just want to flee, right? That's why everybody's moving to Idaho right now. Just want to flee. No diss to the Idaho people or moving to Idaho. Do what the Lord's calling you to do. But it's easy to want to flee. You see unrighteousness and evil and all kinds of wacky stuff, and we want to flee. But what if instead of fleeing, we really press in? What if instead of fleeing, we see God's purposes in the things that are in front of us? What if instead of fleeing, we embrace wholeheartedly the commission that Jesus has given us to go and make disciples of lost people, of messy people, of broken people, of hurting people, and you and I have the remedy. It's King Jesus. We already have it. We don't have to come up with something new. You don't even have to come up with a message. The message is already here. It's that Jesus died and rose again, and if someone will put their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved too. You don't have to come up with the message. You don't even have to do it in your own strength. God has power by his spirit to give you what you need. Whose name is on our lips? What message are we proclaiming? May it be Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we're thankful for the ways that you challenge and encourage us. God, it's easy to want to just kind of shy away from these things. Lord, to flee. And yet, Lord, you have us where you have us for a reason. And God, you haven't taken us home because you're not finished with any of us. So, Lord, in the meantime, Lord, help us to see your purposes. Lord, help us to see what you're doing, what you're allowing. Help us to see the people around us through your love, through your great desire to save. Lord, help us to not forget, Lord, that we were once like them. Lord, help us to live out the gospel and preach it. Lord, that both would be taking place. Lord, that our lives would be those witnesses that show forth that Jesus loves people and wants to save them. Lord God, would you give us endurance in these days? Help us to run the race that you set before us, keeping our eyes focused on you, Jesus. Lord, help us to not lose sight of you. Lord, give us endurance. Lord, God, would we have kingdom priorities. Lord, would all of our priorities of our lives be, be shaped through you, Jesus, in your kingdom, in your gospel, in your commission. Jesus, help us to go where lost people are at and to give them you. Lord, to open your scriptures to show how, Jesus, you're the fulfillment of these things. That you died for them and rose again. And Lord, would our lives be shaped by our allegiance to you. 
Lord, we need you in these days. Lord, we, we are desperate for you to move. Lord, in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, God, we see just so much, so much sin, so much rebellion, Lord, so much destruction, so much hurt. Lord, help us to not lose heart. Help us, Lord, to believe as David did that we will see your goodness in the land of the living. And God, would you lead us in these days? Lord, lead us by your spirit. God, make us those faithful ambassadors that are pleading with the world who is lost to be reconciled to God. Jesus, be on our lips. And look, if you're here today and you've never just first put your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've never opened your heart to him, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Forgiveness is not something that is meant to be theoretical. It's not meant to be something that you just are kind of thankful for that you see in someone else's life. No, it's something that God wants you to experience personally. No one's grandfathered into the kingdom of God. Don't get in because your parents are believers or you grew up going to church. No, that's you coming to a place where you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. Is that anybody this morning? If that's you, would you stand where you're at? I know it's a bold thing to ask people to stand, but Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and all of the angels. Is that anybody this morning? You're saying, that's me. I need Jesus. I see you. Anyone else this morning? Lord, I praise you for this one who has stood this morning saying, Jesus, that's me. I just encourage you in your own heart as you've stood just to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me of my unrighteousness? Would you save me and give me eternal life? Jesus, be my king. Be my Lord. Be my savior. Be my God and be my friend. Jesus, I repent of my sin and I turn to you. Jesus, I put my faith in you today. And I just encourage you as you've done that, the Bible says you will be saved. There's their promise. There is confidence that comes with that. And this morning we rejoice with all of the angels in heaven for the decision that you made. And Lord, we just praise you today. Lord, we want to respond to your word, Lord, and your work with songs of praise, God, just declaring who you are. God, with our hearts lifted up to you in a position of surrender, because Jesus, you're worthy. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.